Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. So we are, as I've said, in a series we're calling Family Matters, where we're jumping into this idea that family matters to God and our family matters are complicated Uh, at best. And so last week we talked about how the number one kind of pinch point for all of our lives really plays out in this conversation surrounding family. And the invitation we made last week was in the times that we're living, it's extra complicated and complex when we get into the discussion about family and that we talked about the mistake that a lot of us are tempted to make in trying to fight to establish our family by swimming up against the stream of culture and how in effect that is a bit of a fool's errand and that Jesus actually invites our fight to be establishing our lives and planting ourselves on him and the truth of his word and letting him fight for us. And so we're talking about that right now and last week, if we discovered maybe the, the, the war zone of family today really is getting to the battlefront, I want to talk for a few minutes about you, about the conversation around identity. I want to ask the question, what are we to do with you? Before we do that, though, I want to read the scripture, so let's do it. This is our text today. We're going to jump in and out of it. But Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained Through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now we'll come back to this, but it has everything to do with answering our question today, what to do with you? What to do with you? You ever have a moment of like sudden onset existential crisis? I I might be weird in this, but every so often, I'll just get in the busyness of my life, going from point A to point B, often happens in the car, I'm driving, and all of a sudden, all of the details and worries and burdens of my life almost just dissipate, and I'm struck with the sudden awareness of what on earth am I doing here? Y'all looking like you need professional help, sir. No, you ever have like a sudden just like, who am I? And why am I here? And what am I doing here? And what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And I have to all of a sudden, in a moment, start reassembling my worldview. Is there anybody, I feel a judgment in the room. Anybody ever have that moment? Well, maybe you don't have it all of the sudden, but my assumption today would be every single one of us in this church family all wrestle with in various ways the question of existence and the question of me. Why am I here? Who am I? What am I doing? And my suspicion is it's this question that motivates the totality of all of our lives. Whether you feel it explicitly front and center or it's just this low-grade hum beneath the surface of the realities in which you do your day-to-day life, my suspicion and my Belief is the problem or the question of me drives our lives. 
We all have to assemble some way to answer this question, what to do with you. We all have to build a worldview and answer the question, who am I and what do I do with my life and why on earth am I here and what about the problems and challenges and threats and inadequacies we face in this life and how in all of it do I find life and fulfillment and joy and peace and purpose? My belief is that every human being is fumbling their way through this world, driven by the same underlying questions, what to do with you? What do I do with me? Every pursuit, every endeavor, every religion, every startup, every, from the most trivial thing to the most substantial things in life, every human being is dealing with the same thing. Who am I? Furthermore, what am I? Further still, why am I? Every person on the planet, I know sometimes we like to highlight our differences, but at the end of the day, we're all the same, answering the same question, what to do with you. Now, the way people are endeavoring to deal with this question and fulfill these questions, this is where it gets complicated. And in fact, right now, we are living through a moment where there is perhaps more variety in how people endeavor to express themselves and live their lives than there has ever been before, at least in recent Western history. Some of you would agree. In the 21st century, we have all the same classic sort of... Uh, you know, channels that people identify with. You have different groups and people groups and religions and races and creeds that, that people align with, but even those are getting more and more disintegrated as the days pass, aren't they? You keep adding different tribes and factions and fractions to how human beings identify even in groups. Notice the LGBTQ keeps adding letters. This is because of this factor that we continue to try to reimagine what it is and who it is that we are. And now we're in a, in a time where it's not just groups that are being reimagined and re-expressed, but our own individuality, our own individuality. We're not just men and women or husbands and mothers and fathers. We, we now see the disintegration of identity in culture like never before. Uh, an individual that has really informed my thinking on a lot of this in his book called Transgender, a man named Vaughn Roberts said that over the last few decades, the primacy of self-expression has become an unquestioned assumption of many. No one has the right to question or challenge how each individual chooses to define themselves. And it should be obvious by now how these changes in our culture val cultural values have impacted the way that many view gender. If we are free to define our own identity without being bound by the old conventions, then that will include the outdated constricting of binary male or female understanding of gender. And this is what we're seeing happening in our day. And now we're actually, even since this book was written, I think about eight years ago, we're now in a time where the binaries of gender are no longer just being broken, but now the binary, like the, the category of human is being broken, where you see people identifying as animals. If you think I'm joking, uh, I'm not. Uh, furries, people identifying as cats and dogs, rumors of teachers having to play along with a, a child who's identifying as a dinosaur. Uh, these things are actually happening, and this is a huge challenge, and I'm not saying this to mock it. I'm saying to identify the challenge not just for society, 
But for families, especially Christian families, this ideology of hyper-individualism and intersectionality and the sovereign self has been pushing up against these immovable foundational claims of our faith, leaving a lot of us confused, uncertain where to land in the conversation about identity and self-expression and personal autonomy, leaving a lot of us afraid for the implications for our kids in the next generation. The stats that are piling up about mental health are jarring. Anxiety and depression, despair, suicide, self-harm, rapid onset gender dysphoria are rampant. It leaves a lot of us afraid, confused, and, and then all in the cultural milieu of political correctness, we aren't even sure where and how we can have conversations about this for fear of being called bigots. And so what do we do with the conversation about identity? I want to present today to our church family a basic framework of the building blocks of, of what Jesus, what the Word of God says about you. And then we're going to fight to hold true to the word of God. Now, my job, like I said last week, is to not go around torpedoing bad ideas. Uh, although that's tempting at times, I believe it's a trap of the devil to go around and point out all the emperors with no clothes. Our job is to get clarity on what the kingdom is all about, what the truth of the word says, and fight to hold on to it for dear life. That's our job. And so I want to present to you some facts. I want to kind of build a Christian framework to hopefully help get us in line and aligned with the truth of God as it pertains to the question about every single one of you and your kids and your family and all of us as individuals. And to do that, I want to look at this text in Galatians that Paul writes. Now, we don't have time to dive all the way into the context of Galatians other than here's why the book of Galatians is really helpful for us in the moment that we're in. Because the Galatians, the church in Galatia, were in a moment where they were being highly pressured and influenced to forsake the centralities of Jesus Christ and the central truths of the gospel. And they had been deceived into believing a diluted, distorted version of the gospel. Now, in their case, it was the Jewish religion that kind of came in and pulled them off the central truths of Christianity. In our case, it's not the Jewish religion, it's the secular religion, which I'll talk about in a minute. But of all the letters of Paul, Galatians is probably the most scathing. Most of Paul's letters all have le levels of correction in them. Some of them are just a good old-fashioned encouragement, like Ephesians and Philippians. If you want a good pick-me-up, read those. But if you want to get it, like, just right down the middle, and you want to get, like, real clarity on just the truth, Galatians is a good place to start. And Paul says this to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. There's only one according to the word of God and according to Paul. And evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Does that not sound familiar? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the true gospel, the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. So Paul comes in and he says, you guys have lost 
the real gospel, and you have been deceived into believing a false gospel. And I believe this is a very pertinent statement for the time that we're in. Because there is a gospel that is being believed, not just by secular society, our mainstream culture, but it's being believed by the church. And I believe we're starting to lose the true gospel. And this is what Paul is getting at. So I want to look for a few minutes at what is the gospel and what is the false gospel that we are in danger of coming under the influence of. And the gospel, the false gospel that I want to present to you today is the mainstream religion of secularism. Secularism. Now, I want you to hear me. This is critical that you realize this, King's Church. You do not live in a country where Christianity is the dominant religion or worldview. We live in a post-Christian nation. There was a time, for many of you, I look around, even my generation, uh, grew up in a time where Christianity was still the dominant cultural religion in Canada. That is not the case now. The dominant religion is secular. It is secular. Now, some of you think, is that a religion? Yes, it is. Secularism is a religion. It has its own set of teachings and ideologies. It has its own set of moral values. It has its own power structure and ability to enforce that power structure through political correctness. It has its own authoritative voices, priests and prophets that help you navigate the world through the secular lens. It even has its own prophecies and eschatology and vision of how things will end. It has doomsday prophecies about the global catastrophe climate crisis. And it also has promises of utopia if we can all just imagine and get along. The secular worldview is a religion. It has its own system. It has its own flags and icons and iconography. It has all of these things that we as Christians know in our own faith. It has its own good news. And here's the rub. This is the dominant religion in our society today. If you walk through a mall or you go to a store, this is the messaging that businesses are trying to align with because it is no longer profitable to not fall in line with the ideas of secular culture. That is why you see all the, ide like the ideology being marketed to you because secularism is the dominant religion of Canada. I was in, like I said last week, my daughter's high school and walked through and I had this feeling that, that the high school is now achieving the very thing that cathedrals were built for back hundreds of years ago. You know why they built cathedrals? It was to catechize you. It was to cause you to think about God. And the same way as I was walking through, seeing the imagery and the quotes on the wall and the icons, I was thinking, my daughter goes to secular catechism. This is church for the secular worldview. And if you don't, if you haven't woken up to that, you, you need to. That you as a Christian are not the majority and you do not live in a country that is aligned with Christianity primarily. Secularism is the force that, uh, that is driving mainstream culture. And it's really important, I tell you this, because this is where we have to get clarity on what the gospel of Jesus is and what the gospel of secularism is. We have to learn how to parse those two things out. So what I just want to do with just a few minutes I have today 
is I want to untangle two competing visions that are probably affecting you more than you realize. I want to get some clarity on the gospel of secularism, their framing story for the world, and the gospel of King Jesus. Does that make sense? I feel like you're all listening. You're just being very quiet. Understood, understood. This is, there's also the feeling, right? You're like, careful now. Um, you know what? I will not be afraid to say the word of God. So here we go. Uh, two fundamental differences I want to kind of begin to outline about the, the gospel of King Jesus and the gospel of secularism. And to do that, I actually began my pursuit last week. I, I messaged a friend of mine, Professor Mike McNeil, uh, who's just a wonderful thinker on kind of mainstream culture and how the gospel intersects. You should check out his substack. Uh, it's called Soul Apologetics. It's really good. But I said, how would you begin to separate the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of secularism? And he said this. I thought it was a really good starting point for us. He said, uh, that's what Paul said. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Where's Mike? I don't see it. I don't have it there. Let me just read it. Well, let me give you my point first, and then I'll read it. The secular gospel says, here's the, the, the beginning point. You make yourself in your own image. The gospel of Jesus begins with the claim that God made you in his image. And now this is a big deal, and it might be a bigger deal than what it appears to be on the screen. And, and Mike helps us. I think, yes, it's the Mike quote. Mike said it like this. The secular gospel is rooted in the old lie of Satan, found in Genesis 3, for those of you who want to see it. And then all through the Bible, you see these, these same lies. The old lie that promises you can be a God framing and shaping your own reality into whatever you want it to look like. You see this on display today in extreme ways. People now have moved beyond reimagining themselves as different sects to different species entirely. As Christians, we embrace, and he uses a Greek word mimetic or mimesis. We embrace a mimetic worldview patterning our lives on a God who already exists outside of us and can be imitated. The secular vision is poietic or poiesis from the Greek word. And this is the belief that you bring something totally new of your own into the world. And in this view, you are the creator molding your existence according to your will. Do you catch the two very different fundamental claims about existence there? And this is a great place to start. Maybe a more simpler term than using Greek words. I heard a theologian kind of dumb it down in a way that I could understand. He said, look, there's two ways to look at the world. You can look at it like a cat or you can look at it like a dog. A dog, if you feed it, you clothe it, you shelter it, you provide for it, it looks around the evidence of its world and he says, man, I have food, I have love, I have shelter, I have a bed. My life must be for you. But you do the same thing for a cat that looks around at its life and it says, I have food, I have shelter, I have a bed. You must work for me. <laughs> it's these two fundamental different worldviews that are colliding. And to unpack the secular vision, here are the two main priorities according to this poetic worldview. It's this, personal autonomy, be true to you, you do you. And then this idea of authenticity, stay true to yourself, express yourself however you want. These are the main priorities of the secular vision as it pertains to an individual's identity and autonomy. 
A guy named Jonathan Grant in his book called Divine Sex, Exploring God's Design for Sexuality, he said, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside ourselves by society or parents or the church or whoever else. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. And now you see this in some of the language in secular society, do you not? This is, this is the basic claim and worldview of secularism. Now this is very different, for those of you who may be new to Christianity, this is very different to the claim of the Bible. We read it last week. We read the Genesis account of how God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. If you want to know the foundational purpose of humanity and where to find yourself in the story, it begins here. And there are some conclusions we really need to draw as it pertains to who we are based on what the Bible says foundationally about human beings. And the first is this. I have been decided by God. You weren't consulted in your creation. That's very important to remind yourself of that, isn't it? Like that, that God actually determined whether or not you would be born where you would be born, how you would be born. God decided that for you without consulting you. You weren't there in the beginning. He was, and your life is something that has been decided outside of yourself. So that should tell you something about where to find truth. It ended in here. It's not inside. Ultimate truth is outside of us. It, it, it belongs outside of us. It, it originates outside of us. God decided us. It says in Psalm 139, you, you saw my unformed body. All the days of my life were written before me in your book. Uh, you knit me together in my mother's womb, it says elsewhere. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you, says the Lord, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. It's a very fundamental, foundational way to look at your life. Are you the product of happenstance and, and coincidence? And you can just determine things about your life because there's no higher power than you? Or fundamentally, do you believe that there was a higher power than you that did not consult your opinion before you were born? It, we have been decided by God. And with that, we've been designed by God. He, he designed us. It says in Ephesians that we are God's workmanship, his handiwork, his craftsmanship, prepared in Christ Jesus to do good works. That is a, a huge claim that flies against the claims of secular ideology, isn't it? That, that God made you and he designed you to function. He formed you according to his will, not according to yours. And with that, we have been made distinct. Now, the Bible talks about maleness and femaleness. It also talks about giftedness, you know, natural gifts, spiritual gifts, personality. God decided those things. He made some of you introverts and some of you extroverts, some with red hair, some with yellow hair, some with black hair, some with no hair, some with dark skin, some with light skin. There is distinction in God's design. 
And then ultimately, that wasn't a dig on some with no hair. I'm going to be finding myself with you in no time flat. I can feel it. My people. Uh, and then ultimately, I've been destined by God. And this is really important. Like right there in the beginning, when God made us, he made us in his image. He made us. And he made us in his image, male and female, with some distinction. And then he blessed us and he gave us a purpose, a destiny, and that is to fill the earth and subdue it. To actually bring the order of God's kingdom on the earth as his image bearers. That's the design and that's the destiny of humanity. So to be Christian, and this is so important, you have to get this. To be Christian is to believe that I have been made Big deal. And now some of you are like, we're really talking about this in church? Yes, this does not any longer go without saying. You have been made. Not only does it say later on you've been bought, but you were made. God designed you. And not only that, let me just say this as a bonus, and it's really important that you get this. Christians believe that our bodies matter. That Christianity is an embodied faith. Jesus is an embodied Lord. Do you know that God, to redeem and restore all things, he didn't send us a text message? He didn't send us a TikTok? He sent us, is it a TikTok? What do you call those kids these days? He sent us, he sent us himself in a body, flesh and blood. And Christians believe that your body matters. This is an embodied faith, and your body is part of the picture. There is a deception that has affected and infected the church for a long time called Gnosticism, where this demonic lie comes in and says, actually, the material world doesn't matter. God is only interested in the spiritual world. And what you do with your body or what you do to your body or what you do through your body doesn't really matter. And it doesn't really matter what you do with creation. All that matters is what you know and your heart. That's Gnosticism. Christianity is actually, God formed me with a body. This is part of who I am. God gave me a mind. He gave me a will. He gave me a soul. And he gave me a spirit. And all of those things create a human being. But we are embodied, created beings. Let me say it again so we hear it. I am a created, embodied being. That's what it means to be a person according to Christianity. So a few implications about being created. Let's, let me, just so we get it clear for the people in the back. Here it is. Number one, I am not an accident. Christians do not believe in accidents that are people. Yeah? There's no such thing. Like, like your parents might not have been planning on you, but again, your parents are not the authors of life. They're just participating in the power of life that God actually is the generator. There's no such thing as an accident in God's economy. We are not an accident. And I am fulfilled from above, not from within. That if God made me, then I am designed to flourish in relationship to him, not in relationship with myself. Very important. And then thirdly, I am not my own. Boy, that, that is countercultural. Just saying that, isn't it? But Christianity would say, the scripture would say, I'm not my own, that God made me, that we're God's property. And it goes further than that in the New Testament. Like Jesus says, you have been bought for a price. And Paul embraced it. He says, I actually, I want to be a slave to righteousness. I want to attach myself to Jesus so fully. We are not our own. And then fourth, my physiology 
was predetermined and it informs my identity, my gender. My gender is informed primarily by my physiology, not my psychology. Now, the Bible warns against allowing your feelings to dictate and determine how you express your life and how you live your life. The Bible tells us, do not trust your heart, for it is wicked and more deceptive than anything else. It says in the scripture, there's a way that seems right to a man that's end is destruction. So it says, don't trust your heart. Don't trust the voice within. It actually tells us to submit ourselves to God's word. And then beyond that, it tells us that we actually have to let how God designed us inform how we express our lives. Your physiology, your maleness, or your femaleness that you were born with is there to inform who you are, according to the scripture. And that we're supposed to align with that. This is why it actually says in the Bible, like, men do not present yourself as a woman, and women do not present yourself as a man. Now, the Bible does not get into the cultural weeds of what masculinity and femininity is. In fact, that's been misappropriated by times in the church. But it does say that we are supposed to align how we identify and express ourselves according to the gender, to the, to the sex that God created us as. It's really important that we understand that. So you as a Christian, it's imperative that you begin to build your framework around this idea of being created and being made. You were made. And the Christian sees himself or herself as an embodied sexual creature made by God with an identity that is bigger than how you feel you are. Now, here's where the secular gospel would push back. It would say, okay, that's great. God made you. But if God wanted me to be male, then why in my innermost being do I identify more with female? Or if God wanted me as a man to be attracted to women, then why am I attracted to men? And the question of if God made me and he made me this way, then why can't I live the way that God made me? That's where this goes, does it not? If God made me this way and I am this way, and listen, Christians, if you're still like fighting back against the fact that some people are attracted to the same sex or some people are born feeling as though they are in the wrong anatomical body, you are not even in the conversation. And they're having these deep, legitimate feelings. And so the pushback that secular gospel would give is, baby, I was born this way. So I have to live this way. This is how God made me. And this is another huge separator or delineation between the secular gospel and the gospel of the kingdom. The secular gospel says, baby, I was born this way. Accept me. But the gospel of Jesus says, you must be born again. And Jesus says, accept me. And this, my friends, is where we have lost the conversation. The church does not need to get into the weeds fighting as to, you know, origin. You know, why, why are some people attracted to the same sex? Why are some people trans? Why does that happen? Is it nature? Is it nurture? It doesn't really matter. The question is, what is the invitation that Jesus gives every single individual? And the invitation and the implication of the invitation is that you are broken and you are not okay just the way you are. But if you come to me and die to self, I will give you a life that you can't achieve for yourself. This is the Christian claim. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus, the religious Pharisee. You must be born again. 
You can stack all the righteous works of Judaism from here to heaven. You're not going to reach me. But I have come that you would have life. And he said, you, you have got to be born again, made new, a new creation, a new creature. And, and this is really important because Christians believe that every human being is fundamentally not just made, but if you keep reading the scripture, we are fundamentally broken, flawed. Everybody, without exception. This is what it means when it says in Romans, you know, there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteousness is not just about how good works you do, how many good works you do. Righteousness is about wholeness, completion. And the Bible says there's no such thing as a complete person other than Jesus. Everybody else is broken. It says in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the standard, the glory of God. And that's the claim. So when you look around your life and you look at yourself, every human being is in the exact same boat. It just expresses itself different. We are all sunk in need of a savior. We are all broken in need of repair. We are all lost in need of being found. This is the central claim of Christianity. And this in no way calls into question or excludes any certain type of person. The invitation is ultra-inclusive. Come to me, all you broken people, Jesus says. And that includes people whose sexuality is expressed outside of the cultural norms or the, the norms of Christianity. Their invitation is the same. Come to me. It's true for the trans person who's, who's you know, anatomical makeup does not line up with who they feel to be. And that is, that is a painful space to live in. And church, we have got to have some freaking compassion for people. But at the same time, not be duped into letting the world redefine what love and good news actually is. To say, like, come, Jesus says, come to me, all of you. And then when you come to me, here's the invitation. Die to yourself that you may live. That's the central claim of Christianity. But you cannot get duped into this, this idea that, you know, well, if you feel that way and you were born that way, maybe God wanted you to live that way. God did not want you to live any of the broken ways that you were born with. He wants us to be born again. It's really important that we understand this brokenness. Vaughn Roberts goes on to say, the Bible's insight that we are all both created and broken is, a vi is vital for our understanding of not just transgender questions, but every kind of human affliction. Every one of them, physical or psychological, we have all been profoundly impacted by the fall. And this is what Genesis is trying to tell us. That all this family brokenness and all this identity brokenness and sexuality brokenness and mentality and psychological brokenness, it's all the result of a humanity that is separate from God who is the originator and fulfiller of life. And when God is not, when we are not in communion with God, dysfunction and disorder and disintegration happens. And that, my friends, that, that is the framework of Christianity, that, that all, all people have been made, all people are broken. See, the world screams, this is who I am. I was born this way, accept me so I can really live. And the gospel of Jesus says, no, this is who I am. 
says Jesus, you must be born again, accept me so that you will really live. Do you notice, and I wish I had more time to, to get into some of the weeds of the subtle deceptions of secularism, but what it really is is Christianity light. It's, it's taking a lot of the ideas of the gospel of Jesus and tweaking it ever so slightly to be aimed at the self and not the son. That's ultimately what it is. And so when you start waking up to the secular gospel of good news, it's going to sound a lot like what we believe. But there's this subtle deception that who is at the center of it all and who is above it all, who is ultimately on the throne. And, and here's something that you've got to hear, church. Hear it. All the locations, just like hear this. Jesus did not come to affirm you. He came to save you. And real love does not look at affliction and brokenness and say, I'm not going to do anything about that. Real love tells it the truth and offers it redemption and a solution. Jesus did not come to affirm you. He came to save you and to save you from yourself and to save you from the, the devil who is the father of lies. And he gives us all the same invitation to come and to live. Notice what Paul says. Let's look again now at Galatians 2. Look what he says. He says, for through the law... I died to the law so that I might live for God. And what he's really getting at is that the law reveals human brokenness. The Ten Commandments are given so that you and I would finally come to believe that we're not okay. And he says, if I stand to the law, I stand condemned and guilty and broken. But he said, but Jesus has offered me life through his death. And he says, I have chosen to be crucified with Christ. And now I no longer live. Paul is dead, but the new Paul lives in Christ. Look, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, there's that word again, it's embodied. You see that? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, not in myself, not in my works, not in my feelings, not in my sexuality or my psychology. The life I live, my identity is now found and fulfilled in the Son. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I love this little verse that sometimes we don't tag on when we, when we recite this incredible famous text. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What's he saying? He's saying my job is to just sit at the table of grace and let him speak a better word over my life. And to stay in that space. And as I do, he transforms me and changes me into his image. This is the central claim of Christianity, the claim that we need a savior. The gospel is both an invitation and a declaration. It tells us that you have been made, but you are broken and you need a savior. And the invitation is for everyone. It is real inclusion. He says, come to me all. Like, and he really means it. No one is disqualified. But to enter, you must die to self. Get off the throne of your own heart and let Jesus take his rightful place. And when you do that, new life happens. Oh, the gospel's good news. Jesus said it like this, talking to Nicodemus, right after he said, you must be born again. He said, Here's the, here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, I love that word, Church, do we really believe that? 
that whoever believes in him, what does he mean by believe? Like trusts him, identifies with him. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But what? Say, say it with me. To save the world through him. Say it again. To save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but set free. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. There it is again. You're broken. You're hopeless. You're lost. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, Jesus is the ultimate solution for the problem of me and for the problem of you. And he is the one where we find not just hope for tomorrow, but health today. You have problems and brokenness that you can't fix. But Jesus offers us life and life to the full. Look what he said a little later, John 10, 10, one of my favorite verses. The thief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you would have life and have it to the full, have it abundant. This is why the thief comes. See, uh, let me say it like this, last point, and I'm gonna wrap up. The secular gospel, let me say it for the powers and principalities to hear it. The secular gospel is a myth. It's a lie. It's a deception. And it leads to disappointment and more disappointment and more disappointment and disintegration and destruction. It eats the person alive. But the true good news is Jesus gives anyone who comes to him abundant and eternal life. I remember having a conversation with a, a trans woman in my office named Amber. And listen to Amber tell the story of like the transition and staying true to who they feel they really are inside. And, uh, and as I listened my heart just hurt because Amber kept telling, like, like, you know, I lost, obviously my wife left me. My kids won't talk to me. Um, I've lost jobs. I've been looked down on. I've been mistreated. And I just felt the pain that Amber was living in. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but think the devil is a liar taking you further and further and further down something that was built on lies in the first place. And he's robbing you. He's robbing you. And this is what happens when you follow the secular gospel. It is, it is built on a myth. It is built on a lie of destruction that will just continue to eat away at your life. But the Christian value of the individual the value of the individual, that you are so loved by God and he has called you to come to himself that you would find life and you would identify being made brand new in him. This is the central thing that we believe as Christians. And I think we're in a moment right now. And here's the good news. I think we're in a moment right now, church, where if we will just get clarity on what we believe 
and have the conviction and the compassion and the courage to get up and stand up and say, come to Jesus, he'll do a lot better for you. And we call people to Jesus. I think we're in a moment where, where people are getting more and more disenfranchised with the secular good news. I read a stat this past week that said, uh, post-COVID, one out of every two Americans uh, is more open to God than they were before COVID. Half. That's incredible. Like we are in a moment where I think the culture, there's a big movement in culture right now that's like, hey, maybe, maybe being, being true to myself isn't getting good results. And maybe these ideas that sound great on paper don't actually work. Maybe this is a big myth. And I, I'll tell you what, what really proved it that culture is shifting was uh, I was driving a couple weeks ago and the radio was on and I heard Taylor Swift come on. Where are my Swifties at? Any Swifties? You know, the biggest recording artist in the world and her new song talks about the problem in the world. And here's, here's her conclusion. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. I, I, I was jarred, it was catchy. I, I, was, I was like low key liking it actually. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually a Swifty, but this one kind of had me tapping my toe reluctantly. Like this is pretty good. But then I like listening to what she was saying, like I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. I won't actually ask myself the tough questions. It's exhausting rooting for the anti-hero. And I thought, man, if that's not the cry, the increasing cry of a generation, looking for a real hero and looking for real answers and starting to realize that me, you know, being my own best bet in this world and me shaping this world according to my sovereign will and purpose is just not working out good for me. There has to be something or someone better. And that's when the church needs to rise up and say, there is, there is. His name is Jesus and he's good news for you. You, in all of your complexity and all of your brokenness and all of your baggage and in all of your ideas and all of your history, he is good news for you. And I, I'll tell you what, I am more convinced than ever that Jesus is good news for all people. Let's be really honest with you. I've been, I've been you know, dancing around on the pulpit talking about tough topics pretty much every year for the last seven or so. And the more I've dove into some of this and really applied the truth of the gospel, I'm actually like, I used to be a little bit intimidated to do this stuff. And now I'm like, I, I refuse to believe the lie that the gospel of Jesus is not good news for homosexuals and heterosexuals and trans people and straight people and black people and white people and rich people and poor people and liberals and conservatives and every other category of people on the intersectional spectrum. Jesus is singularly good news for every single person. The gospel of Jesus is truly good news for everyone. Can I get an amen? It's good news. And he invites every single one of us to let his grace and his truth redefine our whole lives. Our thinking, our doing, our hoping, our speaking, our acting, 
fulfilled and found and formed in his grace and his truth. If you needed a reminder today, my friends, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is the hope of the world, Jesus is coming again, Jesus is grace, Jesus is peace, Jesus is truth, Jesus is joy, Jesus is the light of the world, Jesus is fulfillment, Jesus is true satisfaction, Jesus is mercy, Jesus is a fresh start, Jesus is a guaranteed resurrection, Jesus is eternal life, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, it's Jesus. Jesus is good news for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the truth of the gospel. And we just declare in faith today that we believe that the gospel of Jesus is the greatest story ever told. And it's not just a fable, it's fact. And we build our lives on this truth. Lord, we turn from self and we give ourselves, we lay our lives down to be found new in you. God, teach us what it is to walk that out. Teach us what it is to be people of grace and truth, full of peace and hope and love and security. Lord, would you fill our hearts with your mercy? Would you fill our minds with your wisdom? Would you fill this community with true love and acceptance? Lord, would we be a city on a hill for a generation that are turning, looking for answers? Lord, would we not miss our moment as the church here in Atlantic Canada? Would we be in position to call the multitudes to come and find the life they're really looking for in King Jesus? And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.